Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And so there's a much better element of control there. And, um, and we will start to find that out when the test flying starts. So I'm hoping that we're going to be very, very pleasantly surprised at how well she performs. So you've got to be really on it and really confident before you even step in it in the first place. Eventually I'll be ready. I'm, I, I'm sure it's nothing that Telly can't handle. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson and welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Today I'm joined by our pilot and STEM ambassador, Ellie Carter. Ellie, how are you today? I'm really good, thank you so much for having me back on. Uh, it's great to have you back. We've got a great story to tell. I'm really excited. Um, we also have Mike Harper, and Mike's the chairman of the Aviation Preservation Society of Scotland. Mike, welcome to Extended. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us, Mike. I'm going to come back to you in a minute. I just want to find out a little bit more about Ellie's flying recently. I've had the opportunity to see you twice now um, at Compton Abbas. Uh, have you been busy? Been fairly busy. We had a lot of maintenance to do on the Cubs and been flying them around as much as possible, obviously, at Compton Abbas a few times. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing over the summer is I finished my IMC rating, so that's a big plus. Um, Your what rating, sorry? IMC, or it's now the IRR. All right. But um, yep. so I can now officially do cloud flying if I ever want to. But, wow. um very good. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank so you. What ratings? What ratings have you got now? Uh, I've got my, obviously my my license, and then I did my tail dragger and my variable pitch, but they're endorsements, not technically ratings. And I've yep. got my aerobatics rating and my IMC. Wow. Okay. What's next? Well, I really want to do my structure rating and my multi-engine rating, um, so I yeah. need to start saving up, like, big time. <laughs> right, we'll come back to saving up and, <laughs> and talking about fundraising in a minute. So, Mike, let me uh, let me come back to you um, to talk about this fabulous story that's unfolding uh, up in Scotland. Um, tell us, what's the Aviation Preservation Society of Scotland? Who are they? Well, they're a charity. Um, the APSS have been around since 1973, so this is our 50th anniversary. Um, they were a group of aviation enthusiasts who came together back then to help create the museum in Scotland, um, an aviation museum in Scotland. And um, they worked on... Uh, they, they, they restored the artifacts, they kept the whole thing going, they developed them, they had some uh, aircraft and uh, uh, display artifacts of their own as well. And so um, the, the, 
they came together uh, with the museum and um, and uh, you know grew out of that. Whereabouts is it for those who don't understand geography in Scotland? Whereabouts is it based? They're about they're about um, twenty miles, fifteen twenty miles east of Edinburgh, um, right. near a town called Haddington, just off the A1 at an airfield called East Fortune, which was originally a Royal Naval Air Station in the First World War and then became a, an RAF station in the Second World War. Now, the story that um, we want to talk about obviously involves both the RAF and the Navy to an extent. Um, but tell us how this unfolding project um, kicked off um, and, and tell us how the, the, the whole focus on the strata came about. Sure. Um, well, I'm sure the majority of your uh, listeners have been to Duxford and they've seen the, the, um, all of the aircraft on display at Duxford and the fact that uh, they don't just have static displays there, they have live aircraft. And they have workshops with guys restoring and um, working on aircraft as well. And um, certainly for myself as an aviation enthusiast, it was very it made all the difference to be able to go in there and chat with guys that were working on aircraft and uh, learn about what they were doing, and um, and this is something that was uh, that that attracted the attention of the guy in charge of the museum at the time back in uh, back in two thousand, and he uh, felt that it would be a good idea to have a mini version of um, Duxford or at least start something, and the idea came up to. Um, Asked the APSS who were actively um, uh, looking after the artifacts if they would be interested in restoring and uh, in, in, in actually building an aircraft. They'd never done anything like that, but, um, right. but okay. the guy in charge, Adam Smith, actually talked to one of the, it was the PFA, um, the Popular Flying Association, now the LAA. Yeah. Um, representative, the local guy who was actually working on site as well, um, if he thought that the APSS were capable. And he said, well, I have no idea, but um, but let's give them a try. Let's give them something to make and we'll test it and see if it's uh, going to pass muster. And that's what happened. So he gave them an empennage to make and um, left them well, to what- it. Did they just? How did the 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 concept of the particular aircraft type come about? Did, was there an okay. option? What, how yeah, did that yes, come about? Um, yeah, um, they had originally suggested, or the APSS had suggested that they might have a go at building a Blerio. Um but the idea was to build it and fly it. And um, Tim had said, "Well, you know what? That might not be the best thing to actually build and fly." Um, and then Adam Smith, the guy in charge of the museum, suggested one and a half strutter because they were actually stationed there during the First World War. They used right. to be used to go out onto the fourth and uh, chase away zeppelins and uh, uh, look for submarines, etc. So they were active on that airfield. So it was the obvious choice, really. And the um, the museum paid for the plans. Um, and uh, let the let the APSS get on with it, basically, and uh, and so that's how it all started. Right now, let me rewind because one of the things that I tripped over there was you mentioned you were an enthusiast. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really explored with you how you got into aviation. What was it that that drew you on this journey uh, to get to that point? 
Well, that started when I was about four years old. Um, I had a I had an aunt who used to be in the RAF. She was in the WAFs, and when she came out of the WAFs, she ended up as a um, as a telephone operator at Turnhouse Airport, which is now Edinburgh Airport. Yep. And she operated what they called the PBX, which was the old-fashioned version of a telephone exchange where you pulled the wires out of the bottom and plugged them yep. in the top to connect somebody up. And the, she was the operator, if you like. And, um, and she used to take myself and my two brothers uh, to work with her sometimes, if she was doing a night shift on a Saturday night in the summer, we'd we go that, we'd go there with her. Um, having been in the wafts in the RAF, she had camp beds, and she would set up camp beds behind the PBX, and we'd get to camp there overnight. But meanwhile, in the evening, we'd get to go up into the radar room and stand and watch the ra- the thing going round, the radar going round, and uh, we had to be very quiet as little boys and not disturb them. And then yeah. we got to go up into the control tower and then we got to go next door into the hangar and play about in the airplanes carefully. And um, and that's really how it started. And so we were involved in aviation at a very early age and being young boys, we just absolutely loved it. And that love for aviation has been there ever since. And um, just going back to uh, to her role in the WAF, was that in the Second World War? It was just after the Second World War. Just- she right. Was okay. And so there was, okay. Um, there was still a lot of, uh, and and it was something that um, my uncle Kinsey uh, was actually in the RAF during the war. He was a bit older, and um, and I think it was his influence that actually made my auntie Betty uh, want to to go into the RAF as well. And um, and I have to say, unfortunately, we lost her just this year. So she lived to the right old age, oh eighty three. So. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Did she have any good stories that you can tell us now, or are they all um, too too rich for our ears? It's funny because she, well, Turnhouse was an RAF station, and it was also, because it was so close to Rosyth, where the Royal Navy was, they had some people billeted, some Navy personnel billeted at Turnhouse as well, and that's how she met her husband, Desmond. And Desmond was... uh, Chippy in the navy. He was a he was a he was a a joiner um, because the navy, you know, obviously had a lot of uh, uh, woodworkers. They needed these guys for all sorts yeah. of all sorts of work. And um, and when she first met Des, Des didn't have a driving license, and so she and Betty had a little green mini, and so she used to phone up the control tower and ask them how busy they were, and they would give her permission to. To to um, take Des on, out onto the apron and teach him how to drive a car. So that was one of the stories. You came up with. Can you imagine Absolutely. that happening nowadays? Yeah. Well, no, I couldn't. I it was couldn't. about 1961, um, 62. And just. Just also while we're in reminiscing mode, um, when you were at Turnhouse or, or as it was evolving to become Edinburgh, what sort of aircraft were you were you seeing? What were about in those oh, sorts of days? Vanguards, Vikings, Tridents, um, all sorts of stuff like that. You'd get. Um, uh, I, I remember standing on the balcony at Turnhouse Airport. Um, we used to go down there sometimes, and. Uh, the noisy, the noise of that Rolls Royce, Rolls Royce Dart engine as they came in and parked at the front, pulled up. At the it's front. great. It's a great sound. 
And they screamed, those engines, and we absolutely mm. loved that as kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for taking us down that journey, but let's come back to the um, the strutter. Tell, tell, tell us a little bit about the aircraft. What's its history? What sort of aircraft is it? Um, obviously, people are listening. And for those that don't know what it was, and I'll have to make a confession, I didn't know a great deal about it um, until Ellie introduced me. What, what is the aircraft? When sure. did it serve? It's, it's, what, tell us something about it. Well, it's kind of the unsung hero of the um, of the Sopwith group because everybody's heard of a pup and they've heard of the camel. But before the pup and before the camel came the one-and-a-half strutter. And um, the one-and-a-half strutter got its name because it has the outer outboard struts and then the half struts coming up to the empennage from the... Uh, from the from the fuselage, uh, sorry, up to the, the, the up to the top wings from the fuselage, and um, the, uh, the the aircraft is a two seater. It's not dual controlled, but it is a two seater. Pilot in the front and observer in the back. Um, in actual fact, that aircraft was the first aircraft to have the forward facing Vickers gun with the interrupter gear firing through the propeller. And um, the observer in the back had a Lewis gun on a scarf ring, um, so he would be protecting the back. And it was used for observation purposes. But they also used them for bombing. And they, um, they even managed to bomb the Zeppelin site in, uh, um, God, I can't remember where it is now, down in the south of Germany. Um, so they, 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 they were all over the place. For instance, um, Richard Bell Davis, the man who, and I will get on to him in, in a while. Um, he flew them during the First World War in uh, in, in, in oh God, it was the Ardells? Um, and yeah, it's oh, sorry, I've forgotten the, the the name of the place that he flew them, but it was it was Don't in worry. Uh, anyway. Yeah, um, he uh, he, in actual fact, won the Victoria Cross for landing behind enemy lines under heavy fire and picking up his wingman who had crashed in marshes and um, and getting him out of there. So that was the very first time that anyone had been airlifted from behind enemy lines during the war. And, and so this was an aircraft that was active in the First World War? Very much so, yeah. yeah. Right. 1915 now, it came along. Now, I was really surprised... Um, at the performance stats of the aircraft, actually, um, it had quite a healthy range, 300-ish yeah. miles, yeah. um, 100-plus miles an hour knots. Um, it was quite a, you know, that's quite a decent performance for well, a World War yeah. One aircraft, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. In actual fact, Bell Davis talks about it in his book, and um, when they first got the aircraft, one of his, um, one of his, uh, uh, one of the guys in his squadron um, flew just as a test. Flew the aircraft all the way to Devon and back from Kent, so it was about a three hundred mile um, trip um, yeah. without landing, and so yeah. um, and that's really surprised me as well. It had that's a really decent that. <laughs> when you consider the amount yeah. of weight. In the fact that it was running castor oil, you know, total loss engine, so it had to have a big oil tank as well as the petrol tank. Ours doesn't because we are running a modern engine, so you know, there's a, a bit of um, it's a bit lighter in that respect. But um, there was, the, you know, when you consider the all-up weight 
of that um, and the reliability of these engines. It's amazing how they could go up there and stay up there for so long and, yeah. um, and, and not really have mechanical or too many mechanical problems with them. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk then uh, about the restoration project and and, and how that's that's come about. They've they've got the opportunity to build an aircraft. Mm. Um, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about engineers? Where did you get the resources from? Where did the money come from? How did you put all that together? Well, they, they come from all uh, walks of life. The members, um, you know, it, we have we have, for instance, Rolls Royce ex Rolls Royce engineers. Ex um, civil engineers, ex uh, ex um, surgeons, um, you name it. The guys are they're all just guys who come from various walks of life, but they're interested in this sort of stuff. And that's so we're not we're not talking about aviation engineers here, are we? No, and that's and that's the interesting part because you have a bunch of guys who obviously know what end of a spanner to hold. But they're um, they're they, they they don't necessarily know anything about the subject that they're uh, uh, apart from their enthusiasm. But I think it's their enthusiasm that carries them, and the yeah. fact that they've been given this opportunity to build an aircraft from scratch. And if you can imagine, what amazes me is the vision and the determination of these guys taking a piece of wood and a bit of metal and um, and, and and fashioning them into. Um, a piece of kit that is has to be built very, very carefully under very strict rules, and, um, sure. and build it to fly. It's so. In that respect, it's it's fascinating that the guys managed to do it. But um, when you get further on to the build, when you've when you've done the woodwork and you've done the um, and the metal work and you've strung the whole thing together, um, and you you plant an engine on the front. Um, the engine on the front isn't the old rotary style, but it's a it's a it's a radial engine. It's a Rotec radial engine. So underneath the cowling, it looks the same, although the engine doesn't spin. It's just the prop. Um, but that is a brand new Rotec engine, and with the Rotec engine comes lots of ancillaries like alternators and starter motors and uh, yeah. and um, all sorts of um, instrumentation, and so. The wiggly string, as I call it, has all been pulled together by some ex-Ferranti guys who really know what they're doing. And I have to say, it's one of the most beautiful piece of, pieces of, um, of wiring I've ever seen uh, in an aircraft. It's really been done properly, and it's okay. lovely to see. So um, let me ask you about some of these characters, because I don't know them personally, but they come across in certainly the photos and videos and the press articles that I've seen. Tell us about some of these these characters that are involved, because they, they sound quite fascinating to me. They sound like a really interesting bunch of folks. Yeah, they are, well, they are, and they've all, they, 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 they've all got a good sense of humour. And we all, we, we all get on with each other because we have a good sense of humour and we have a good laugh. And um, it's been described as a men's shed on steroids or, or, or a high-tech men's shed, um, there's a bunch of guys that get together and then they break for lunch and they have a great laugh and um, enjoy each other's company and support each other. And um, and it gives these guys something to do after they have retired. Um, yeah, let's, let's put it into context. A, a lot of these are retirees, aren't they? Yes, they are. I was very lucky when I joined 
I was self-employed, and so um, I was in a position to be able to give a day a week um, uh, and and, uh, and go there instead of working. Um, so I was fortunate, and I did that, um, you know, in my fifties. Um, but the, most of the guys have actually retired, and um, and you know, the our oldest member actually t- um, just uh, we lost him a few months ago. He was a hundred. And wow. he was actually wow. he was actually the guy that established the Aviation Preservation Society. Jim O'Donnell, he established the society. He was the uh, he was the um, the chairman for a while, and um, and he was involved in gliding and all sorts of stuff as well. So the APSS going back didn't just have um, they weren't just building planes, but they had their own glider that they a T fifty three glider that they used to fly as well. Right. Okay. So, um, now. Now, Mike, if, if it's okay for me to, to touch on this, it, mm-hmm. it's also been quite widely talked about that this is also something that's, uh, that's helped some of these uh, individuals over some personal challenges in, in, in their lives as well. Sure. Um, you know, yeah. help them with their well-being. Well, um, I, can, I can count myself among them. Um, yeah. I mean, can, I, can I, you share that story with us? Yeah, not a problem with, at all. I mean, I've... Um, I I was with um I was with my uh, ex-wife for thirty years, and um and you know a lot of people um, end up the relationship breaks down it finishes you move on, and um mm. and you move on and I've moved on and I'm, I've remarried and um and I have to say the wonderful thing about it is my ex-wife and my wife get on quite well. So, so I um wow so the, that doesn't and, happen very the often. For that, yeah, the reason for that is we share the dogs, and so um ah. because I, I I you know sometimes when couples part, you know the the if you have pets, you know they go one way or the other. But um, but uh, we were sensible enough and reasonable enough to want to to look after them. Both of us look after them, which has turned out really well for us. Um, yeah. So, but 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 when I was going through that period of um of the the marriage breaking down and uh, us separating um going down to the hangar as we call it and sitting with the guys they they were genuinely concerned about me about what I was going through they gave me the opportunity to talk about what I was going through and it helped enormously and there are other guys there that have been through the same or similar things that uh that um, you know that we're all there for each other, and that's something I think it's. I think it's why the men's shed concept is so successful nowadays. Yeah, because yeah. Um, because people that you know they proved that, and it's it's they proved that you know guys guys will not talk face to face, but they will talk shoulder to shoulder, and so if they're if they've if they've got a if they've got an issue, um, they you know they they find it. You know, helpful if they've got other guys there that they can that can sort of um, help with that burden, and that, that's all. Yeah. That's really all it is. It's really good for your mental health. I, I think um, uh, my father served in the fleet air arm at the, uh, the the back end of the the war, um, and one of the things he always talked about was that camaraderie ship, and that that sounds like what you have sure. with this group. Yeah. Um, and that's what's helped gel you to this common 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 objective 
of building from scratch let's remember from total scratch sure. this this aircraft tell us about some of the challenges you've had in in in, in building a world war one aircraft in the year 2000 and whatever it was 2000 and bits and pieces until today it's taken what 10 20 odd years We've well, we started in two thousand, so it's officially twenty three years. But you can imagine at the very start. In actual fact, um, if you were to come into our hangar today, you will see parts in there um, that are the equivalent of the parts for the strutter about you know twenty years ago, um, because we're now building a pup as well. So the longer arms, right. the um, bits and pieces <laughs> are getting are, are getting. Uh, um, they're going. Th- they were going through the surface planer today to get them to the right, and they're checking all the lengths of wood and seeing what will do and what will not do, and checking where they need to um, scarf them and whatever. So, you know, the, the the work is going on on the new aircraft as well. But a lot of the parts on this aircraft, you you, you can't just rock up to a parts department and buy them. Um, yeah. You have to make them, and that's yeah. where. The individual skills of members like Len Hart, who was ex-Rolls-Royce, who could turn his hand to that sort of thing. People like Frank Fiddis, who, who um, from scratch built the uh, rear jack for the empennage that uh, that that um, allows you to vary the incidence of it. And um, and that was a job that some of the top um, engineering companies locally were not prepared to take on. No, because yeah. these skills have gone, haven't they? Yeah, they've well, gone Frank, from Frank's, our mids. Frank's an ex-toolmaker, and um, yeah. give him give him a give him a lathe, and he'll crack on with it. Simple as that. And and he's one of the drivers here behind this uh, whole project to bring some of those skills back, to share some of those skills, to show others, particularly younger generations, um, some of these manual skills that we've lost to technology. Mm. Well, that's our mission now. We want to, and we've 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 done quite well so far. We're bringing the youngsters in, and we're we're, we're um, we've we've had situations where we've had uh, youngsters who are between school and college, or they're out of school but they don't have a job, and they've come into us, and we've accommodated them, and we've gotten them involved, and uh, and um, and they've moved on, which is absolutely fine. That's exactly what was what was planned, um, but. To, to welcome them in and let them see that, okay, we're a bunch of old guys, but we've got something to tell. And it kind of reflects my own story. Because when I was a youngster, um, there was a guy that lived a couple of doors along. He had younger kids, um, but we had, he used to, he used to sort of fiddle about in his garage in, in motorcycles. And we used to show an interest. And instead of chasing us, he would, um, he would welcome us in and, and and teach us the some of the rudiments of um, of engineering. And this guy yeah. ended up getting me my first job as an apprentice, and um, and I trained as an an apprentice, an apprentice auto electrical and diesel fuel injection engineer. And the um, and this and and that training um, opened the doors to every other job that I've had in my life. And I spent uh, at one time twenty years as an area manager for Honda UK, um, but I go straight back to that apprenticeship and that's what opened the doors for everything. Did you know that in the late 1940s, during atomic weapons testing in the Pacific, the USA used Boeing B-17 flying fortresses as unmanned radio-controlled drones? 
Did you also know that in 1927, two RAF officers in a Hawker Horsley set a new distance record, flying from Britain to the Persian Gulf, only for it to be eclipsed just hours later by Charles Lindbergh's Solar Atlantic crossing, which was a mere 180 miles longer? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal, print and digital, that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran from Plane Crazy Down Under. And you're listening to Extended. How the heck are you funding the building of a aircraft that, in effect, is 100 years out of date? Um, well, when you have the, it's it's incredible when you look at the plans for this aircraft, and you can see um, where did they come from, Mike? Where did uh, they where did they come America. from? The, uh, there, I think there was two sets of plans actually, and um, so it helped because they can compare they could compare one to the other, but okay. um, it was replicraft. The, the the ones one of the sets of plans was replicraft, so uh, you know they they are they were out there and. Um, I guess you know, I, I you know I have no idea how they came or they stayed around these plans, but maybe somebody just had the idea that if I copy this lot, I might make, make be able to make some money out of it <laughs> one of these days. So. And um, and so so yeah, fortunately they were able to find the plans for the uh, uh, for the aircraft, and they still exist because there are there are modern um, manufacturers like Kip Aero who in America who are um, putting together and offering kits um, of the strutter, but the, these kits are uh, in wood, so they're they're following the original plans. Uh, and right. I've seen it at Oshkosh, and it's a pretty faithful reproduction. So the wow. the, the, the stuff still it's still out there. It really just requires the the, the requisite skills uh, to be able to turn turn you know the the, the plans into into pieces into of reality. Metal. Now, I, um, I, I, I need to go back. How, how are you funding this, Mike? How, how's all this? Because this is can't be uh, well, a cheap process. It was, as I mentioned earlier, it was, um, it was originally funded by the APSS selling a few of their own artifacts and an aircraft, and that gave them the funds to be able to start and continue this project. It gave them enough money to buy the engine, for instance, and all the wood. Um, but over the years, um, we have been lucky enough to get the uh, the odd grant here and there, and also we've been very lucky in that we've uh, the, there have been people out there who who value what we do. They can see how exciting and interesting this project is, and they've been prepared to put their hand in their pocket. And we've had a few very, in actual fact, we've had um, maybe three totally anonymous benefactors, um, one in particular who's been happy to fund the cost of our rent for a number of years now, and, um, and nobody knows who it is. Okay. And I think that's, well, that's absolutely that's nice. wonderful. It's just somebody yeah. that values what we're doing, wants to see the project through to completion, and, um, and, and I think that is just wonderful. 
So whereabouts are we in the in the project now then, Mike? Where where are we in the program? She is sat in a hangar um just west of Edinburgh. Um and she is ready to go. The paperwork is in at the LEA. It's all been submitted. The aircraft's buttoned up and uh, ready. We uh, we had a we had a, a little ceremony a few weeks ago where Tim Rayner, the uh, the test pilot and LA inspector who's been with the job since the start, um, presented Evan Pohl, who was one who is the team leader, if you like, and he's been with the project since the start. He presented Evan with the logbooks for the engine and the airframe, and all of the paperwork and. Um, we signed it all off. It's all been double signed by the LAA inspectors and we parceled it up and sent it down to the LAA with a nice big picture of of, uh, of the strutter in, in the top of the box. We call her Sophie, by the way. Her name is Sophie. I was going to, that was my, uh, my next question. Yeah. Um, she's got a name. She's called Sophie. Where does Sophie come from? Um, I, it was just one of the guys came up with it and it stuck. To be perfectly honest, okay. As well, I can tell you, the, 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 it's, it, these are the sort of things in aviation that that happen. Um, the sort with Pup, for instance, um, it had a model name like they all do, but um, a prototype was sat outside the hangar, the hangar at, at Kingston Aviation, um, next to a sort with Strutter, and Tommy Sopwith was standing there with one of the generals, and the general turned around to him and said, "Oh, look, Tommy, your your strutters had a pup because the pup was just that little bit <laughs> it looked the same, but it was smaller." Yeah. And so the name stuck. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. the same. And our our um, our aircraft's called Sophie the Strutter, and um, and somebody mentioned just a few weeks ago, she sounds like a um, a nineteen twenties flapper flapper girl. <laughs> Sophie the Strutter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. I was thinking of changing the title of the program, but I'm not sure it might not come up on the wrong search engines if we <laughs> if we did that. Um, so let me bring let me bring Ellie back because this is where I think um, this project gets um, quite interesting. So where do you fit in with this process then, Ellie? Um, really, I'm, I'm just part of the documentary. I haven't done any of this awesome stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just hoping to tell some of the stories of the women that built it and eventually be the first female to fly a strutter. Fingers crossed. It'll be amazing. We'll see. So so just taking that first point then, um, when these were manufactured 100 years ago, uh, it was predominantly from a, a female workforce. Yeah, it was often a lot of women. They did a lot of the work on them. It's, um, there's actually some brilliant photos of the women in the factories doing all the work on the strutter. Um, yeah. It's kind of a shame because they're kind of forgotten. Nobody really talks about the women that built them. It's always yeah. males that flew them. So it would be wonderful to share some of those stories. Yeah, so part of this process is to get that sort of knowledge out as part of the, the overall project um, and get those messages over, particularly encouraging um, youngsters and, and girls um, in particular, into STEM and engineering topics? I think so. I mean, I obviously love to encourage absolutely anybody into STEM and flying topics, but it's really nice to share the structure in these aircraft have so much history behind them and not just the obvious history that everybody knows about. It's kind of yeah. nice to bring the unsung bits out. Like Mike said earlier, it was an unsung hero. So being able to share yeah. all that side and the stuff behind it is brilliant. So how does one go about 
flying or preparing to fly an aircraft that probably no one has flown for a very, very long time. I'm not quite sure it's a hundred years, but it's not going to be far off. So how, how are we going to go about that? Honestly, that's quite difficult, probably. Um, I'm doing a lot of Tigma flying at the moment when the strips aren't wet and it's not too windy. Um, hopefully that'll give me enough tail dragger experience to start flying something like that. But again, the Strutter's an old aircraft. It's not designed in the modern ways. So I can imagine it'll be quite a tricky aircraft and very challenging to fly. You certainly don't want to get into a bad situation. Um, And also not being dual controlled. You can't just get in and fly with somebody. So you've got to be really on it and really confident before you even step in it in the first place. So I think really it's just flying the Tiger Moth like loads and hoping that eventually I'll be ready. And is the is the process to 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 fly a new aircraft type like that? Uh, I mean, I would imagine you go through some some ground running um, exercises, potentially some you know ground runs uh, as well to get the feel to get the feel for the aircraft moving and, and that sort of thing. Um, are there any? I'm going back to my World War Two experience now. Um, it, does anything like pilot's notes or experiences of flying the strutter exist that you can refer to, get a feel for? You know, does it pull left all the time? I don't know. Is there anything like that around that you can research? There are normally some forms of pilot notes and manuals for most aircraft. Obviously, the strutter is very old, so yeah. whether there are any is very difficult. Um as for the pulling left and right, normally the way the propeller turns will give you a good indication of whether it turns left versus right. And for yeah. example, with Pygmos backwards, so it's left, whereas most other things are right. But um, really, it's often with flying, it's word of mouth from pilots. Like, this does this, this does that, this does this. And obviously, that's the problem that we don't have at the moment. And that's what makes it tricky. Is there any, Mike, in your experience and knowledge, is there anything around like that 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 exists? Are there, are there stories? Are oh. there pilot stories anywhere? Yeah, well, Richard Bell Davis actually wrote about the strutter in his book, and it's interesting that he he um, he was uh, very complimentary about the airframe, um, and uh, it was unlike the, the the pups and the camels that were a lot more unstable. They had to be as fighters. Um, the 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 strutter seemed to be a lot more docile, and um, and so yeah, I mean, and, and the thing is, my thoughts listening to Ellie there were that. Um, when you think about it in the set, in the First World War, guys were stepping into that aircraft for the first time with with hardly any hours. They had no idea, some of them, what, what you know, well, very little idea what they were dealing with for that particular aircraft. They might have flown something else, um, but uh, getting into the structure for the first time. Um, uh, but when you compare, you know, the average guy getting into the strutter then. Um, for the first time, and then you compare it to Ellie with the amazing amount of experience that she's had with them, um, uh, different types of aircraft, and especially that she's um, she's taken um, some good advice and um, started flying the Tiger Moth, which yeah. is um, it has been described. The strutter has been described as performing. A bit like a wayward tiger moth. That's how I heard it. <laughs> um, so, right. Okay. And I think to that extent, it's maybe just she's just a wee bit wallower. Um, you know, doesn't maybe answer to the controls as well. But um, but um, I'm I, I'm sure it's nothing that Telly can't handle. But in saying that, we have always said 
from the very start. We we have no idea how this airframe performs. Um, yeah. And when you consider that the aircraft has, um, you know, a modern engine that that might have different characteristics in the way it develops power. Um, certainly, fortunately, um, the benefit of having the modern engine is that you got a throttle, and you're uh, you're not just switching uh, your ignition off and on. But um, yeah. and so there's a much better element of control there, and. Uh, and um, and we will start to find that out when the test flying starts. And so I'm hoping that we're going to be very, very um, pleasantly surprised at how well she performs. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I think we're all staking our reputation on this. Um, <laughs> no pressure, Ellie. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see when it happens. Um, when Tim yeah, um, takes her for the first couple of hops along the runway, we'll see what his feedback is. Yeah. Um, where's this plan to take place, Mike? Where, well, it's whereabouts? Not, it's, an RAF, it's where they do all the gliding in Scotland, um, RAF Kirk Newton. And right. they just happen to have a, a kilometre long grass strip which is exactly what we need. So as long as we yeah. can get dry surface, calm day, um, wind in the right direction, in other words, straight down that runway, then um, and we have obviously permission from the LAA and the necessary insurance in place, uh, then she will take her first hops. And it's, I think one of the guys described us, somebody said, are you excited? And he said, well, um, in actual fact, we're suffering from excitement fatigue at the moment because we've had so many possible starts and it's just been knocked back and knocked back. COVID yeah. was a big, um, you know, it, she would definitely have been in the air by now if it hadn't been for COVID. But right. uh, that, it is what it is. And so we're we're really on the threshold now and we're just uh, waiting for for the right conditions. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm coming back to Ellie in a minute to talk about um, that stage. But before, um, we finish off on the, the project to rebuild her, you n there are a few bits and pieces that you need to keep pushing, Mike. Um, and there are some financial challenges, aren't there? Um, yeah. how can people help you, um, to overcome them? Uh, uh, what support can they give you? Well, we we have a we have an AP the APSS have a website. It's um, very easy to find. It's APSS dot Scott. Um, they are there's an opportunity to donate in there, but also the we feel that this this documentary that's being made um, about Ellie and about the APSS is an is a fantastic opportunity to raise our profile and you know let people see who we are, what we've done, what we've achieved, both of us, that is Ellie and the APSS, and uh, the fact that we've done it against all odds. And so we feel it's a fantastic story, and that's why we're um, pushing for this Kickstarter to get off the ground and, um, and make this documentary so that we can share our common story with everyone. And so primarily I would say we, we're going to have six months just over six months in the building that we're in before we have to do something about raising the funds or we need to raise funds now to buy it. But we feel that this this uh, documentary is going to massively raise our profile. And hopefully if we can get it done before then, um, it's going to make a big difference for us. And it's a story that has to be told. So it's a great yeah. opportunity to tell that story. 
Carter is a 20-year-old pilot who at just 16 became Britain's youngest female to qualify to fly. She combated years of bullying to follow her unfaltering dream, encouraged by her proud father. Ellie's passion has always been vintage aircraft. She heard of a group of pensioners aged between 65 and 100 who have built a World War I biplane from scratch over a quarter of a century in a big shed in Scotland. Originally built by women while the men fought at the Western Front, this paved the way for female suffrage. Women were not allowed to pilot the planes they constructed and for decades were not considered reliable aviators. A century on, Ellie wants to be the first woman to fly the strutter, which is modelled on the first warplane ever to land on a moving ship at sea. She's contacted the pensioners, who credit the project with giving them the will to live and arranged to visit them in their windswept East Lothian shed. It's just a wonderful aircraft and propeller. It's amazing. It's just, I can't believe it. It's wonderful. The strutter returns us to the daring of the first era of flight, when piloting a plane was like being an astronaut today. My ambition is to be in the back of that aircraft flying over an airshow waving to people. That would just be wonderful. It's absolutely everything. The people I fly with now are incredible and it's just so much fun. I, I love it. Being up in the sky on your own in a World War II aircraft that served in D-Day, it's something really humbling about being a teenager, probably the same age as a pilot flying it back then. The aircraft is almost ready to fly, and Ellie is set to pilot the old boy's pride and joy. This film tells the story of this plucky young woman and the men who defied all expectations to build their time machine. In this film about beating the odds, Ellie maps out her journey and encourages girls and young women to never give up, to be bold and just do it. It's just absolutely beautiful. It's, it's kind of like aviator's heaven, to be honest. Everything's so original and it's, it's wonderful. It's lovely. So Ellie, let me let me come back to you. You've got a personal story to tell as well. Some of us are familiar with some of it, and obviously we've talked a lot. You know how passionate I am about the work that you do, but you've had a tough journey. You know, we 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 recognise some of the successes you've had. You know, youngest female pilot at sixteen. It wasn't easy for you, was it? No, it wasn't as easy as it could have been. I, I don't come from a flying background at all. So from a start, start, I was kind of 
on the back foot. It's the aviation industry is very much not what you know, it's who you know. Um, and I didn't have any contacts to begin with, so I've had to make them all. And then to top that off, I'm I'm not very old. I started when I was flying when I was nine due to some YouTube pilots basically getting me flying. I kind of owe everything to them. And then some very nice people take me flying and eventually let me fly their airplanes. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't really have the money side either, which made that difficult. I had to save up every penny I have, and I still do. And really hope for bursaries and just support from everybody. So it hasn't been easy, but it's kind of it's a wonderful th- thing to be able to get where I am pretty much purely on the generosity of other people. And I'd love to be able to share that. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. You're quite understated, Ellie, but you've also had, not everyone's been particularly encouraging along the way. You've had some challenges. You've had some, some other issues. You've had to fight some, some, some tough battles personally, which, you know, you're coming through um, now, but those are messages we want to make sure we get across and is the documentary going to help tell some of that story as well as the story of the strata i really hope so obviously being a young and a female in aviation is is somewhat of a minority so although most people are great you do get some things from some people people that aren't i guess used to it um so hopefully we can share that in the strata and kind of make the documentary into something that would inspire young people and make it make them realize that it's it's okay to struggle and everybody has these reactions from people it's if you're not getting the reactions, you're not doing something. So embrace it and yeah. do your best and try and try and do do what you want to do. Yeah. And so the documentary to both of you, Mike and Ellie, really, um, the documentary is to help tell those stories, to help promote some of the things we've talked about, STEM, getting youngsters into trades to understand engineering uh, and things like that. How are you going about filming all of this? How's it being done? Of course, the culmination has to be, um when the aircraft flies but how are you doing all the rest of this um well we've done quite a lot of interviewing already um the uh, the director has been along and filmed us at our shed at our hangar um we've done a bit of filming here at home at my place as well um we've interviewed ellie we've interviewed myself and a couple of the guys from the APSS in fact, on the hottest day of the year, I seem to remember it. It was um, pretty hot, but um, but uh, we had a great it, day. What? Hang on, hang on a sec, Mike. This is Scotland. It gets hot in Scotland. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it was something like fifteen degrees. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, uh, so we've we've done a fair bit of the uh, the filming um, already, but like as you say, the the story is not complete until that aircraft leaves the ground, um, and uh, with Ellie in it. So uh, yeah. we didn't. We need to do the test flying first. We need to do the uh, uh, to make sure that the aircraft is is uh, performing well, and so um, you know there's there's a bit to go yet, but. Um, we're a hell of a lot closer to it now than we ever have been. Um, and it's really yeah. talking maybe weeks or a month or so before we can get out there. Now, making any TV program does not come cheaply and there's no benefactor sitting out there. Um, you know, the BBC aren't commissioning this. Nobody's sitting there saying, we're going to make this, we're going to put it out there. Um, so part of this process is a Kickstarter uh, program uh, to raise funds to make and produce this documentary, which, if it is successful, potentially could go on a platform, a national uh, or an international TV platform. 
but it has to be made first. So, Ellie, how are we going around raising funds for the TV programme? Uh, yeah, so as you mentioned, we have the Kickstarter campaign, um, which I've posted like for everywhere. Um, hopefully we can make that in time. Um, if we don't yeah. make it by the deadline, obviously all that money goes back and we're back to square one. What are we looking to raise here? What are we talking about? I think the Kickstarter set to 22,300. So it's, right. it's a lot and it's not in a lot of time. So it's quite optimistic. Yeah. But in, in, in the world of um, TV production, that isn't That's a lot, lot. actually. <laughs> That is not a lot at all. Um, so this is not, you know, looking to, to, to break the sky here, looking for small amounts to, to build up so we can make this documentary uh, and remembering that there's key messages in this about encouraging people to come into the industry, the history, um, the work that Mike's team has done, the work that you do, Ellie. So there's lots of really strong messages. So we're really, really urging people to look at the video if you haven't seen it it's out there uh and we are promoting it ellie's promoting it on social media um we'll put links to it in the in the show as well but please 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 if you can contribute even if it's a very small amount please sign up and see if you can contribute to that and then we can hopefully get that produced and get those messages out there and if you know if if the angels are singing, not only will this aircraft fly, fly well, but we're able to promote that message to a much wider um, audience. So let's talk about where we can find out information. Mike, let me come to you first. Where can we find out about the project, the organization um, and the strutter itself? Well, what, what I would say is the very, the, um, the, Best place to go now is our new website, APSS.scot. Um, that website tells you all about us. It tells you all about the aircraft and the fact that it was the very first aircraft to successfully land and take off from a flush deck ship. In other words, the world's first aircraft carrier. And that was actually, yeah. that was actually, um, done in the Firth of Forth, only about four miles as the crow flies from where the aircraft has been built, um, right. owned by Richard Bell Davis. So that website has all the information you need about us, but it also has links to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, the uh, Twitter or X page as well. Um, um, so jump on there and have a good look around and contact us if you want. Um, the the also the Kickstarter information is in all of our um, uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter profiles as well. Okay, wonderful. Anything to add to that, Ellie? Just before we start wrapping up. No, I don't think so. Um, that seems to be the best place to go. Obviously, all our social medias have the links posted everywhere, but that seems a pretty good place to go. Okay, well, we'll put all those links in the show notes and we'll promote those across uh, social media as well. So that's it. We'd like to thank White Hearts for our music and to Mick Oakey and the Aviation Historian for all of their support. We'd also like to thank Simon Jakubowski at the Aviation Enthusiast Book Club. You can find me at Nascot Hornet on Twitter and you can find Tim and Gareth on the extended Twitter, Facebook, threads and Instagram feeds. But finally, before we go, Ellie, where can we find you online? Oh, God. Uh, so I'm on Facebook. I think it's Ellie Carter. I'm on Instagram and it's at Ellie Carter 74. 
and I'm going to call it Twitter because it's always been Twitter. I'm on Twitter at DragonGirl94. So that's it with the arrival of the music. It's goodbye from Mike. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from Ellie. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Johnson. Remember, stay tuned to this frequency. That is, of course, Aerospace Radio Station Extended. legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program And leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. From across the globe. From the centre of aerospace. And now to you... The Royal Aeronautical Society is the world's only professional body dedicated to the entire aerospace community. Established in 1866 to further the art, science and engineering of aeronautics, the Society has remained at the forefront of developments in aerospace. Visit www.aerosociety.com Extend it! This is XTP Media.